The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to ask for God to help us because uh, we need God's help to hear from Him, from His Word, and uh, we want to know Him more. Father, we ask that You would help us and we ask that You would send Your Spirit upon us as we look at Your Word together and study Jesus in your word. In his name we pray. Amen. So when we read, when we read uh, Luke 5, starting in verse 27. After this he, this is Jesus, after this Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large number, a large company of tax collectors and others reclined at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled to his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One of the things that you you may not know about me or my family is that my mom was a judo champion. My mom uh, was a major judo champion. This is a picture of my mom. Uh, She's the one dominating whoever's dying there. My mom, when she was in high school, she was, she was a uh, judo champion. She would go to judo championships all over the country. She was a black belt and was like, you know, you know and she's like a smaller woman, so you wouldn't think of this, but like it's all, you know, brute force. So this is my mom again. And can I point out one cool thing? I know you guys don't care about this, but the cool thing is up here in the top right, very strapping young man with a beard, that's my dad looking on as my mom's pummeling this person. <laughs> right? Right there, that's my dad. <laughs> Anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> so, why do I bring this up? My mom, she was in high school. She had this whole thing going on with judo. And this is kind of one of those kind of classic stories in our family. She had this huge thing going on with judo. She was on the national roster. She was going to go places with judo. And she kind of basically hit this crossroads with her judo career. Um, where she could either choose... Um, she was probably like 18 or 19 or so. She could either choose to pursue judo and give her life to judo, which would mean that would just become her 12-hour days every day of the week for forever and have the chance of going to the Olympics because the Olympics were opening up uh, judo for women. Or she could have said no to that and got married to my dad. Thankfully, she chose to say no to judo. And if you know the story, uh, uh, actually, she would have been going to the 1980 Olympics, and the 1980 Olympics were boycotted <laughs> by America because of you know, the whole Russia thing, the Cold War and all that. Uh, but So she chose no and decided to devote her life to my dad and be, uh, we can take that down now. <laughs> There's my mom. <laughs> but it was, it was this idea of she had to devote herself to judo, to to really see that out. You know, she had to commit her life to that. And really, it's this idea of devotion that is at the, at the heart of some of what's going on in this passage, this heart of 
devotion, this heart of discipleship. You know, when you devote yourself to something, you become a disciple, which is why, you know, people in judo are often called, you know, disciples, or they're in schools, and it's that, this idea of devoting yourself that is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple, and all through the Gospel of Luke, we see this major theme of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to be devoted to Jesus? What does it mean to be committed to Jesus? It happens over and over and over again, which is kind of what we're going to be seeing with all these personal encounters of Jesus as we go through the gospel together. But it's this picture of discipleship that we're going to be seeing tonight with Levi, because Levi gives us this very insightful, basic picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And what we see with Levi is we see what it means to uh, repent, this re- idea of repentance in our discipleship with Jesus. What does it mean to not only repent, but what is, what, is that, what is the shape of that? What does that look like? What does it mean to have a whole change of mind, a revolution of our orientation, and out with the old and in with the new, an acknowledgement of our need? This repentance is a request for healing. It's, it's a dynamic of changing who we are. It's an orientation towards Jesus. And because repentance shapes and molds around who Jesus is, that's what we're going to be seeing. We're going to be seeing what repentance means and doesn't mean and how everything orients around who Jesus is. Because Jesus is the object of repentance. Jesus is the object of what's going on in Levi's life. Jesus is the object of what's going on in this passage. And so while we are going to be looking at repentance, we are going to be looking at what is discipleship and repentance. What do they do together? What is what do they mean? What, is, what does that do? And so, we're just going to simply be seeing that in, in Levi's life, and what we are called to, is that disciples are called to repent of everything, to follow Jesus. We're going to be seeing it, I mean, we're going to, have you, if you're paying attention to the passage, going to be, it's lifted straight out of the text. I don't have a lot of frills for you, but Disciples are called to repent of everything to follow Jesus. And we're just going to be seeing that in two points. We're just going to be seeing that, that disciples go to Jesus and that disciples go with Jesus. So in Levi's life, we're going to be seeing how disciples go to Jesus, how they repent of everything. Disciples go to Jesus. And then we're going to be seeing how because disciples are called to repent of everything, disciples go with Jesus. So we're just going to look, starting... Point one, disciples go to Jesus, verses 27 and 28. And after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So the thing that I want to just draw our attention to immediately is that we could easily kind of pass over this, but he sa- it says starts out by saying, after this, all that's been going on, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. That it's not, it's not just kind of a passing phrase. When Jesus looks at somebody in the in the Gospels, it's an intentional verb. It's intentional to draw our attention that Jesus went out. And of all the people that he could have been looking for that day, after everything that's been going on and all the people that he knew, Jesus intentionally went out and he was looking for Levi. He intentionally went out to get Levi's attention. Now, Levi is also, you might know him by Matthew. He's called Matthew. He's 
the source behind the Gospel according to Matthew, the first book of the Gospels. This is a major character for the rest of the, of the New Testament. But Jesus went out and looked for him, and who did he find but Levi, the tax collector. Now, I know that all of us might not be fans of the IRS, uh, but this is not the same thing as what's going down here, because tax collectors in those days were bad dudes, mostly. Uh, they were the scum of the earth by the culture. Everybody hated them. And you might be wondering, why were tax collectors hated? Here's why. Roman occupation meant that the Romans would come in and they would basically decimate the culture because they wanted to take control of everything. They didn't necessarily decimate of like everybody's day-to-day -day life, but they just wanted, to, they wanted a take of everything. And so they wanted the taxes from a culture for a province. And what they would do is that they would basically sell the right to get taxes. They would say, you know, you want to, we want to get taxes. Uh, John over there looks like a good guy who can muscle people out of getting taxes, so we'll sell the right to get taxes to John. John will buy the right to get the taxes, and so now John has the right to go through the whole province and take as much money for the taxes as he wants because he's not only going to get the taxes, but he has to recuperate his cost for buying the, tax, the right to get taxes. And because he's in control of how much people pay, you know, I really want that yacht over there. I want to get a new house. I want to send my kids to college. He's going to start raking up the cost, and then he hires people underneath him to make sure that he gets all the, the taxes. So he's got the direct, direct tax, which is just, you know, we might call it the flat tax of just, you know, how much you pay off the bat. But then there's the taxes for traveling, there's the taxes for food, there's the taxes for sales. And especially for the people in this context here, they would have been traveling a lot. And every time they would have left a town, every time they would have come to town, they would have had to pay the tax for traveling. So it's... It's just, you know, everybody has their gripes about taxes, right? You know, <laughs> wherever your political persuasion, everybody has their gripes about taxes. And so the point is that Levi, the tax collector, would have been a native to the people there. He would have been a local. And yet here he was, you know, scamming people off of their money, the local people that are his people, for taxes. It is, uh, everybody would have hated tax collectors. They would have been reviled by everybody. And so here is this, this guy that basically like a mob boss, you know, like a mobster that in that context. Uh, Jesus goes out this day, maybe it's the morning for his, he's just had breakfast, he gets out, going out for the morning stroll to go teach and preach, and he calls Levi, Levi the scumbag of the earth, who I might have some background with, we've probably talked a little bit, but Levi, I want you. Levi, I want you to come and follow me. Levi, I want you to leave this. Levi, I want you to come with me. You see, here is, we see this picture. We're going to see these pictures through the Gospel of Luke that are just these little phrases. We're seeing this act of grace where Jesus goes out and he calls Levi specifically. He wants him. He wants Levi to be his disciple. And I think the thing that's helpful for us to see here is that Levi had nothing to commend himself. I'm sure that he was very good with money. I'm sure that he could read and write very well, which actually, interestingly enough, because he could read and write really well and be really good with money, which, of course, he used for dubious means in his previous occupation, he was a really reliable source for writing one of the Gospels. But here is Jesus, doesn't care about that, 
doesn't care about any of the qualifications that Levi brings to the table. He has no qualifications. But Jesus gives him grace. Jesus is intentionally going to him and calling Levi. I want you. Levi, I want you. Which means that for you and me, there is no qualifications for grace. There is nothing that we could do to qualify us, ourselves for grace. Actually, the only thing that qualifies us for grace is being disqualified. We do not have anything that could draw Jesus' attention to us. There's nothing that would catch, catch his attention. I don't think that Levi had, hey, Jesus, I'll give you ten galleons to get your grace. A sign hanging out there in the front. It's a little Harry Potter reference for you. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, I don't, do, I don't have anything to get your attention. Jesus, I don't have anything that would make you think that I'm worthy of this. He is just sitting there in his occupation as a scumbag tax collector, and Jesus wants him. Jesus doesn't look to you and think, I really want you to get your act together before I give you grace. I really want you to get your suit on right. I want you to get your tie laced up correctly. I want you to get your, your life back together. That's not the way grace works. That's not the way Jesus looks to you. He does not look to you to get your life together. And what's interesting here is that the story of Levi's conversion, you might call it, Levi's conversion is that uh, he doesn't have like this story of, I felt really bad and then I went to Jesus. It's not, we really don't know what Levi's experience of this was. I mean, we can kind of begin to think about it, but there's, there's nothing said about how guilty he felt about how he felt ashamed of being a tax collector. What happens is, Jesus walks up, Levi, hi Jesus, Levi, follow me. And he gets up and follows Jesus. That's all that he, because what he recognizes is that everything that's gone on with Jesus, all these stories of Jesus' healings, the, the teaching of who Jesus is, the teaching that he's been showing about the grace of God, the way that Jesus has been forgiving people of their sin, that's, there's something about Jesus that he wants that exposes what I have is broken, what I want is Jesus, and that's the end of the story. There's not like this huge drawn out, oh, protracted, oh, I'm just so bad, Jesus, how bad could I be before you come to me? No, like he le- his repentance is more about Jesus and getting Jesus and following Jesus. His repentance and faith, you might say, is more about seeing Jesus and responding to Jesus and loving Jesus than it is any about I'm really, I really feel bad about who I am. There's not, there, there can be sometimes a sense with our, our sense of faith, with our desire to know God's holiness, that we have to be, um, we have to feel especially bad before God will love us or show us kindness or be gracious to us. And that, that's, I think one of the kindest thing, kind things that God does for us in this story is that there's no sense of how bad Levi felt before he responds to Jesus. It's less about feeling bad, and it's more about seeing Jesus for who he is. It's not, the point isn't to feel bad about all the scumbag things that we are, because Levi had a lot to feel bad about, but he, it's not about that. It's about turning to Jesus. It's about seeing him for his value. It's about seeing him for who he is and what he has done. And it's not just that he does, that he loves to save sinners in general, but that he loves me personally. He loves you personally. That as Levi would see that he says to you, follow me. He says to you, 
Come and get me. Come to me. I want, I want you to have me, not some sort of spiritual shaming experience. I want you to have me. And there's a sense in that every act of faith is an assurance that Jesus loves me personally. It's a confidence that who Jesus is is not just generally kind to people who are broken, but that he's kind to you personally. What are you broke? Where are you broken? How are you in need of Jesus? He doesn't just kind of offer his hands and say, well, I like to help needy people and just kind of stare around. No, he looks to you, looks you right in the eye. I love you. I want you. I want to be gracious to you. I am gracious to you and so that you get me, so you get Jesus. It's all about getting Jesus, and it's all about getting these it, these stories about who Jesus is are to draw us into himself personally. So I wonder, you know, as we're talking about this, again, not trying to be overly, uh, not trying to be impressive with the application here or to think about how this applies to our lives, but it does mean that we do have to repent. Repentance does mean that we leave something behind. At, Levi left this job of his that he had been skiving off of people's money. You know, he had been he had been scamming people, and he he left that behind. We do have to leave something, and potentially that is a life that is dishonoring to God, that is uh, sinful, that is not good. But maybe it's more mundane things. Maybe it's just that. You know, like, I've been uh, you know, making my, my family my idol. What is it that you need to repent of? And maybe this is a, it's kind of a vague question. What do you need to repent of? You can just kind of say, like, well, I need to repent of being me, I guess. But, you know, repentance, maybe, maybe to help you kind of think through, what does it mean to leave something behind? And you can think about this for Levi. For Levi, what could he not imagine his life without? He couldn't imagine his life without being a tax collector because that was his livelihood and means and his source of income. For you, what could you not imagine your life without? What could you imagine if something were to say, I'm going to take that away? What would destroy your happiness? What would steal your joy if it went away? Maybe that's a helpful question to kind of begin to think about. What does it mean to repent? Because it's not that we have to necessarily get rid of all those things that would make us sad. I mean, it, you know, if my wife were to die, that would be very sad, but my wife is not the source of my joy. The only thing that would take away the source of my joy, the source of your joy, is if you have Jesus. If you have Jesus, there's nothing that can take that away from you. But maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your family, maybe it is your status in the community, maybe it is um, your job. But if somebody were to take that away from you, that might be the area to begin to think about repentance. What does it mean to leave those things behind? What does it mean to take those things and lay them before God and say, God, these things have taken on a, a deeper priority, a deeper importance to me than you. They have become more important to me. I can't imagine my life without them. God, I repent of these things. I need your help. God, forgive me for making these things important. You know, Martin Luther, the, uh, the great... Reformation kicker offer. The guy who started the Reformation. 
his first thesis for the 95, for his great 95 theses was, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent. He intended the entire life of believers should be a life of repentance. Our lives, when we come to follow Jesus like Levi, we don't know everything that we need to repent of. But we do learn over time, Oh, I, I do think that what, the, what people think about me is more important than I, do, than I, I want it. I really do struggle with my trusting God for provision. I really do struggle with trusting God for my desire to have a family or to have children or to have a safe and comfortable life. I really make, I make those things more important. I make those things the orientation of what is valuable to me. And like Levi, Jesus comes to us and says, follow me so that we can repent of those things, so that we can repent of those things that we put our hope and trust in so we can follow Jesus. And maybe another thing here is, as we're talking about this and we're talking about Levi's repentance, is I don't know, I don't know if you ever struggle with your sense of, am I a Christian? Am I really a Christian? Am I really, really a Christian? I call it the longing for assurance or anxiety about, am I a Christian or not? That whole category. The thing I think is helpful here about this whole little story about Levi's conversion is that it's not about the strength of Levi's faith. It's not about how strong his story of conversion was. It's about Jesus. Assurance, our, our assurance that we are Christians is not about our own experience of faith. It is about the object of our faith. It is about Jesus Christ himself. Jesus loves people who have broken faith. Do you see Jesus for who He is? He's the one who who strengthens your faith. He's the one who is the place of your assurance. He Himself is, is what makes your faith true. It's not you having a great story or conversion story. It's about who Jesus is and His love for you and yourself. So our, our sense of assurance comes from Jesus and who He is, who He's promised Himself to be to us, and not about your how great you feel your faith is today. So we're seeing this, you know, we're looking at these two verses and we're seeing, okay, here's Levi the tax collector that Jesus has called to Himself. He has called Him to Jesus. And our disciples, we're seeing in Levi, they go to Jesus Himself. We go to Him. So let's look at the rest of this passage here and ask, what else are we supposed to be learning about discipleship? What else does it mean to repent of everything, to follow Jesus? And we're going to be seeing that disciples not only go to Jesus, but they go with Jesus. So let's pick up at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with, and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, it's amazing 
as we look at what happens in Levi's life, we, it's amazing to think and to see that the first thing that he does is to throw a big, great feast for Jesus. You know, here he is. He has left his livelihood. He probably was, and we can just kind of guess, he probably was a man of means. He probably was good income. But he's left all of that, and the first thing he does is not what you and I would do, is to settle in the savings account and make sure he's good for the long haul. He throws a huge feast for Jesus. He is excited about this extravagant grace that he's received from Jesus, and his first response to Jesus is to have a mirror to be like this extravagant, extravagant grace that he's received. As he has received much, he gives much. He is eager to throw a party, and it's not just for anybody in particular, but he made him, Levi made him, that's Jesus. He made Jesus a great feast in his house. He threw open the doors, he got the keg, he, he killed the fattened calf, threw a big old party. This is all for Jesus. Jesus, you have been kind to me, you have been good to me. Let's make sure everybody knows heaven's a feast and we're going to get ready right now. Jesus, let's have this party. And Jesus hangs out with all these people. He celebrates Jesus. It's not just for anybody in particular, it's for Jesus himself. And not only is he throwing this huge party to reflect God's grace in his life, but he goes out and gets all of his friends. He is not just kind of generally bringing in his friends, sending out general invites. It's like, no, guys, this is going to be a good. This is going to be a good party. It's going to be a rocking time. I want everybody here. He goes proactively and gets all of his friends. He goes out and gets all the tax collectors, sinners, and others. These are the broad friend networks of his mob boss culture that he wanted at the party with Jesus. Jesus. You've saved me, you've been gracious to me, now I'm going to get all my friends who are just like me, and I want to bring them in, and we're going to hang out together. We're going to have a good, long, rocking time, and Jesus hangs out with these people. He's not there handing out tracts. Jesus is not there just to kind of be, you know, a fly on the wall. Jesus is there, and it says that he is reclining at table with them. He's relaxing. He's getting to know them. He is fulfilling the great commandment to not only love God, but to love his neighbor. Jesus loves these people. He's hanging out with them. He is being their friend. He's asking questions about who they are, what's going on. He's getting to know them. Because Jesus is there, his mission of love, just as Jesus would have known Levi before this event and would have gotten to know Levi, Jesus is there getting to know these people. Getting to know who they are, hopes and dreams, failures, sorrows, getting to know them. And the reason that we know that he is spending a lot of time with them is because ultimately the Pharisees, Pharisees don't get angry for just kind of like, like a, a casual conversation. Like the Pharisees were getting angry because Jesus was hanging out with them for a long time, getting to know them and hanging out with them. You know, and we talk about this a good bit here, but I think that. Is that my son? Oh. Sure, this is a good bit. I think that some of this, what this means for us is that as we love our neighbors, we are to follow Jesus' example. We're to follow Jesus' example to love our neighbors as he went into this party and hung out with them and spent time with them. We should be proactive to pursue our neighbors around us, to love those people that are literally our neighbors right around us, to love the people in our neighborhood, in our city, to get to know them. What are their hopes and dreams? Are there anxieties and failures? 
Do you have meaningful relationships with your neighbors? Do they know that you love them, not because they are a project, because you're their friend? You know, it's, it's often easy to try to just do Christian things and hang out with Christian people. And Christian people need Jesus too. But we want to pursue those around us just to know our neighbors and to love them and to be a part of their lives and, and meaningful, in meaningful ways to love them because God loves them. And I think the thing that's interesting here is Luke tells us in verse 29, he says, so there's a large company of tax collectors. But I find it interesting. He says there's a large, large company of tax collectors and others. It's kind of like this like, general category. <laughs> like, it's like a general catch-all. It's like there's a bunch of strange people all together. And they had no reason to be together other than that Jesus was there. <laughs> like, it's, it's, just a, it's a catch-all for this category that I find helpful because... Others are basically anybody who's not like us, right? You know, anybody that's other to me is somebody who has hair, which is everybody else in this room. <laughs> you know, we're all different from each other in one way or another. There's, you know, you had the Bernie Sanders signs on the front porch, and you had the Donald Trump signs on the front porch. You've got the people who are the spectrum across. All of them are together, and <laughs> or Bartlett, depending on who your persuasion. Um, they are all together, it, people who are not alike or like us. Because this cuts both ways, right? The other category of people who are gathered around Jesus are people who are like me and not like me. They're all gathered together around Jesus. This isn't, they're, all not, they're not all supposed to look together. Some of them are going to have mohawks. Some are going to have tattoos. Some of them are going to have ties. Some of them are going to have uh, flannel shirts. Some of them are going to have skinny jeans. Some of them are going to have... Skirts and dresses and uh, Doc Martens, they are going to be very different, all gathered together around Jesus, because ultimately it is to emphasize the fact that Jesus is totally different than everybody else there. The reality is that I think, I wonder if the reason that, that Luke put this phrase in there, the others, is because the reality is that we are all others to God, right? Jesus is the only one of this party that is absolutely pure and perfect and holy. He has never disobeyed God. Everything that he felt, thought, said, or did was entirely good and perfect. We are not like that. None of these people in this room that Jesus is in are like that. We are all other. We are all different from God. We are all, what you would say, unholy. We are sinful. We are this category of sinners and others gathered around Jesus because the reality is that this is all pointing to that moment when Jesus would take on the otherness that we deserve, the unholy, the righteous wrath of God that we deserve for being others to God so that we could be invited into Jesus' house, that we could be invited to God's table with Jesus, so that we could become sons and daughters of the living God. You know, these things, these, these pictures that are going on in this story are to help us see that we do not deserve to be at the table with Jesus. And yet Jesus took on everything that we deserve so that we 
would not be others to God anymore, that we would be sons and daughters. We would be invited into God's presence so that we would be near Him and know Him and delight in His smile and be friends with Him. And that, I think, I think that's what the Pharisees missed. So we see, you know, we have this whole thing here at the end of the Pharisees, you know, later going to the disciples. Why, why is He eating and drinking? And yet, you know, just to kind of emphasize this again, that Jesus was with them. He was a part of the crowd. He was a part of the party. Luke is the only one of the gospel accounts of this moment that includes the phrase, eat and drink. He, just, he is trying to drive it home. Jesus was with these people. He was hanging out and having a good time. Now, why, why did the Pharisees miss this act of grace? What did the Pharisees miss? I think Jesus gives us a clue here because he says there in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician. And I don't think that he's being literal there. I think he's being a bit facetious. I think he is saying, you guys think that you're well. You guys think that you think you got it together. And I think that what the Pharisees, I think what the Pharisees had going on is that they, their problem wasn't that they didn't understand Jesus. I think they got Jesus was new, he was a savior, he was a master and lord, and they they kind of began to get what that meant, but he didn't play ball the way that they thought that, that meant. He didn't he didn't act the way that they thought that he did, he should, because if Jesus was really good and really a savior and really a prophet, then he wouldn't he wouldn't hang out with these type of people that were defiled. They would that Jesus actually would have acted like them. Jesus would have, in his desire to stay pure and stay good, separated himself from these people. He would have, like them, trusted in his goodness. You see, the Pharisees, they didn't just misunderstand Jesus. They misunderstood righteousness. They misunderstood goodness. Because they were despising people who were not good, like them. And they were separating from people because they ultimately trusted in their goodness. And the Pharisees, I think, what they, were, they had going on in the mental background is, if Jesus was really good, he would be acting like us and he would be on our team. And he would be separating from these people. They weren't at the party because they wanted Jesus to be on their side. They wanted Jesus to play ball They wanted Jesus to act good the way they acted good because they were ultimately, I think, I think what's going on here is they were trusting in their own goodness. And we see, I think, how this plays out because the trust in your own goodness for us, I think for them, for us, to trust in your own goodness means that you have a condescending attitude. You look down on people. You will make small comments about how other people are not measuring up. Your, your, your emphasis is on comparisons about how other people are behaving with the implied, but I don't do that. You know, It's this kind of hard mechanical view of how other people are living, and it's this view that if you do this, if you do this sort of goodness, you get grace, you get blessing. It's... Um, it's this desire to earn God's favor. It's the desire to earn God's goodness because, well, God's been good to me and I'm going to stay, I'm going to keep God, in, God loving me because I'm going to keep obeying. Right? It's going to get God's 
Sorry. I think that was my child's head against the wall. It is a desire to get God's favor, to get God to love us because we have been good. I think it's this desire... uh, it's this desire to um, earn God's favor. And I think ultimately what Jesus is saying here is that we can't, um, is that goodness for these Pharisees, and I think in our lives, goodness in a certain sense, if we love our goodness, if we trust in our goodness, it can blind us to trusting in Jesus. Yeah, that was my son. Sorry. We're all in this together, guys, you know. This, this uh, goodness apart from Jesus can blind us. That You notice the Pharisees are grumbling. The Pharisees are grumbling against Jesus. I don't know if you noticed that, but it says in verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes were grumbling against his disciples. You know, this phrase grumbling actually is used in the Exodus account about the people of God when God saved them out of, out of Egypt and was taking them to the promised land. It says that they grumbled against God. God wasn't playing ball the way they thought God would play ball. That's the same word. It's the same word that's used here. These Pharisees were grumbling against Jesus because he didn't play ball. He didn't give. He didn't give them what they wanted because they had done the right things. Right. Grace cannot be earned. Grace cannot be manipulated out of God's hand. Grace is not something that you wrench out of God's hand or you get God to give you because you've been certain a certain amount of good. Grace is not something that you. You earn or deserve. It's not something that you get because you have been, you know, pure enough. The Pharisees missed it. They missed what righteousness meant. They missed the whole point of being obedient to God. It's not to get something out of God's hands. We can't get God to be be gracious to us. You look at the example of Levi. Levi was not good enough. Levi had done nothing, and I think that's what was irking the the Pharisees out. They realized Jesus was gracious to Levi. Jesus was gracious to these sinners. Jesus was gracious to these other people because that's who Jesus was. They didn't do anything to deserve it. Jesus is gracious to you, not because you deserve it, not because you're here tonight, not because you pray a certain amount, not because you worship a certain way, not because you read your Bible enough times during the week. Jesus is gracious to you because of who He is. Because He loves to be gracious to people who are broken and needy. People who are other. People who are broken. People who need God. People who are in such desperate need that they are like the examples that we've seen, a paralytic who can't do anything to save himself. A leper who is absolutely defiled in the culture has no reason to be near God or near other people. Jesus loves to be gracious to us because that's who He is. He is a gracious God. He is, on His own initiative, gracious towards us. It's the people who need a physician. The people who, like you, are sick and needy and broken. Jesus comes to sinners and calls us to repent, but it works both ways, right? He calls us to repent of our sin, that we, you know, high-handed sin against God, you might say, the things that are, like, obviously bad. But He also calls us to repent of trusting in our goodness. He calls us to repent of trusting in our certain obedience that we think will get God to love us more. He calls us to repent of delighting 
in all the things that we've done for God to get God to love us. He calls us to repent of everything. Not just the bad stuff in our lives, the things that we have done against God. He calls us to repent of all the things we've tried to do, we've done to get God to love us. He calls us to repent of those things because those things will separate us from God. You can be good enough and go straight to hell. Because that's not the point. The point is to get Jesus. The point is Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is what we need. Jesus is gracious and loving and full of grace for people like us because Jesus sees you. Just as Jesus went out that morning and saw Levi, Jesus sees you. He looks to you because He wants to give you grace. Because He is eager to give you grace. Not because you have shown up tonight, but because you are needy. Just like the sort of people that Jesus loves to give grace to. Jesus loves to give grace to people who are unqualified. He loves to give grace to you. Because He has looked at you, and His sight of you led Him to the cross, where He would, in the sight of all men, and in the sight of God, be rejected, be condemned, be judged for all the things that would make God look away from you, where he would be rejected for all the sin that would make God look on you with wrath. Jesus took that gaze from the Father so that you could receive the grace of God, so that you could receive new life as we've been singing about, so that you could receive the Father's warm heart. The Father wants The Father is eager to save. And so the Son came and took the angry face of God so that you could receive the loving look of God. You know, Jesus comes to you and looks on you so that your your weak and feeble faith in Him, your weak and feeble repentance, your weak and feeble need, he loves to bless that. He loves to look on you and bless, bless your weak and feeble faith. He loves to give grace to those in need. So I don't know what you need to be repenting of tonight, but I know that the object of our repentance, Jesus himself, as we repent of everything to follow him, we, we get Jesus. We get God, this gracious and loving God. As we repent to get Him, as we go to Him and we go with Him, we get more of Jesus. So, I would encourage you as we are continuing to worship God, repent. Repent of the ways that you see that you are finding value, finding your happiness sourced in something else. Repent of the ways that you have trusted in your goodness. Repent. Not so that you can just be done with that. Repent of everything so that you can get Jesus. So that you get Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story of Jesus. We ask that you would help us to repent so that we would get more of Jesus. So that we receive his grace. So that we enjoy his goodness to us. Father, we ask as we turn now and receive the Lord's Supper, that we would remember Jesus' look upon us from the cross. 
so that we can now enjoy your kindness to us. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.